certain people in their neighborhoods have worse odds of getting like shot or being the victim of violent crime than a soldier in a war zone. And that is not an immaterial fact. That is a profound issue that has to be discussed. In 2020, it was nearly impossible for people to raise their hands within progressive circles and say, hey, I don't like the rhetoric. The debate was co-opted by white progressives who yeah. often were speaking from a position where they didn't have to live the cost of the policies that they were espousing. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, we have a guest co-host today, Camille Foster, who's the co-host of the Fifth Column podcast and a producer at Freethink. Camille, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it and glad to join you. Well, we have a lot to talk about today, Camille. We're going to talk about the midterm elections and different battling messaging between Democrats and Republicans over crime and whether we truly have a crime wave or not. We're also going to talk about PayPal, who's under fire right now because they have been censoring users. They haven't really been explaining exactly why in certain cases. So we'll discuss why some of these financial corporations have certain obligations around how they police speech or not, where they should draw the line. We're also going to talk about a fascinating case making its way through the Supreme Court this term. It may be getting a lot of attention in legal circles, but it really isn't at that Dobbs sort of affirmative action level. And we'll talk about why maybe it should be. But first, let's talk about inflation. Like Literally, as we were preparing for this episode this morning, the new CPI numbers came out for inflation. It shows that uh, CPI is at an 8.2% year-over-year increase. The expectation, I always wonder what we mean by the expectation, but the expectation was 8.1%. So it comes at it slightly higher than the expectation was. I, I don't know exactly what to make of the politics of this, but it certainly seems like we're just not out of the woods yet on inflation. I think we've been promised for a long time that that this was behind us. And it just transitory. Be, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so transitory. Transitory as in not really supposed to happen, at least not supposed to be permanent. This seems pretty durable at this point. I, I believe these are like the last numbers that we get before the midterm. That's elections. right. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So this seems significant for the election. Yeah. 82% uh, of voters say it's very or extremely important right now. So that's up at the very top of priorities. Well, let's move on to a different debate that's raging in the midterms. And I think this is strangely, if you would have asked me, what would be the dominant conversation in October? I would have thought it would be the economy, it would be inflation. And it's not that it's not a big conversation, but we're hearing so much more right now about crime. And there's a huge debate raging in a lot of these key Senate and in certain cases, gubernatorial and House races about crime. It seems that Republicans have taken... Uh, like I think advantage of a, a perception and we'll debate the reality of it, uh, that there is increased crime in this country and that there's a crime wave, we have a crime crisis and they're running ads throughout the midterm elections. And notably, I think we can start with Pennsylvania where Oz, uh, Dr. Oz had really been in crisis mode throughout most of his campaign, really stumbling. And then you had a couple things happen. Fetterman's had a health crisis, but Oz has been running ads pounding Fetterman on crime. He shot a teenager in cold blood, killing him for money to buy heroin. And John Fetterman wanted him to walk free. As chairman of the Board of Pardons, Fetterman says he's trying to get as many criminals out of prison as he can. So that's the ad attacking Fetterman. And then Fetterman has now responded. The DCCC came out with a memo basically saying, how do you respond to these, uh, these attacks? You use validators is what they call them. Essentially, people in law enforcement to say, hey, this guy's OK. I'm a county sheriff, veteran and Pennsylvanian. I'm sick of Oz talking about John Fetterman and crime. Here's the truth. John gave a second chance to those who deserved it. Nonviolent offenders, 
marijuana users. He voted with law enforcement experts nearly 90% of the time. So there's a saying in politics, if you're explaining, you're losing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I think of when I think of this, is that Fetterman is now squarely on the terrain that Dr. Oz wants him to be in. We're talking about crime. We're not talking about crudité. We're not talking about how out of touch Fetterman wants voters to think Dr. Oz is. We're not talking about January 6th. We're talking about the stuff that Oz wants. And if I'm in the Oz camp, not to talk about this like it's sports or something, but like if I was in their camp, I'd be feeling really good about the narrative heading towards uh, the election in November. Yeah, I recently did an article for the New York Post about people who had left the Democratic Party and re-registered as independent or Republican. And the thing that I heard again and again and again was crime and like these kitchen table issues of crime and inflation and the economy and the things that people feel in their day-to-day -day lives, especially in urban centers. I would say that was the most obvious um, kind of trigger point. And I, I mean, I think it's literally my job to figure out and spend this morning parsing through the internet the national crime data and i still don't have a good sense of it because like different jurisdictions don't like report to the fbi and then does the national number matter as much as the local numbers and the on the ground stuff and i think that as much as like there is data that we need to parse through on this and and talk about places where narratives get out of control there's also just a general voter sentiment that mm -hmm. is the reality and it's not voters full-time job to be parsing through this stuff and sometimes the anecdata is kind of the most important thing especially in urban centers i would say in terms of how how voters see these ads or just see crime in general in their life and might be gravitating towards a more conservative candidate that's that's ringing the the alarm bells about it yeah i think what we could stipulate to in the data is that crime went down dramatically from the 70s uh, up until a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Huge decreases in crime. Like for instance, in New York City, the murder rate in 1990 was 2,262. And then in 2021, it was in the 400s. So that's like a huge decrease. Mm -hmm. What we also know is that from 2020, at least that year, potentially, we 2021 is a disaster, which we could talk about in terms of data, but we know in that year, crime mm -hmm. went up. At like I think at least a decade plus the largest increase in most violent crimes that we saw that year. Yeah, so, there are twelve major cities that had their highest, their record number of homicides in twenty twenty one. So, so it depends on your um, reference point. And yeah, does it even yeah. matter what the reference point? I think is a big it, debate. Totally. Right? I mean, yeah. at least from my vantage point, I was born in two thousand. I was negative ten when the nineteen nineties were when the nineteen ninety homicide rate was occurring in New York City. It doesn't affect me. But I was eighteen when I moved here, and I felt considered safer than I do today at 22. To the extent politicians are struggling to deal with the crime issue, particularly incumbents who have served while mm. this has been happening, one of the principal things that I see happening over and over again, I was in San Francisco, or at least outside of San Francisco for a good while, up until about March of this year, um, is it's the way that policymakers end up talking about these issues. If you're doing a bunch of hand waving and insisting to people over and over again, well, it's not as bad as the 1990s. As you mentioned a moment ago, you're already losing. You're right. in a very bad spot. This is precisely what cost the DA in San Francisco his job. All of this, well, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. People want to hear that you are appropriately concerned about this, that when they perceive that there's a problem with crime, that you're keyed in on it, mm -hmm. um, and that there's some sort of remedy that you can propose. And interestingly, I would say, I think what you pointed to, Ricky, this, this question of how should we think about violent crime and how should we think about crime rates in general in, in the country, the national trends are important and interesting on some level. The statewide trends are almost certainly more informative than that. 
But it's when you get down to the local level that you really yeah. start to get an understanding of how crime is impacting particular communities. And the fact that most of the time violent crime is occurring in particular neighborhoods, on particular blocks even in some cities, is what really tells you the story. So I think while it is the case that this is an issue that's been beneficial to Republicans and harmful to a lot of Democratic um, incumbents, probably because of a lot of the criminal justice reform discussions that we've had, fairly or not, um, it's also the case that it's worth talking about because there is a very unique disproportionate impact on particular communities. And some of these communities have seen their violent crime rates go up by 100, 200 percent right. in certain yeah. instances. That is a, a huge change in your quality of life. That's a, effectively a situation where certain people in their neighborhoods have worse odds of getting like shot or being the victim of violent crime than uh, a soldier in a war zone. Um, and that is not you know, an immaterial fact. That is a profound issue that has to be discussed. Um, so I do worry a little bit about both kind of the, the attempt to kind of obfuscate the issue by some policymakers, but also journalists who continually try to qualify the fact that we're actually seeing these increasing numbers, right. but insist, oh, well, it's not as bad as 1970. It's not as bad as 1990. Yeah, I find the, the coverage very frustrating. And I, I felt this was particularly problematic in, in June of 2020, where you couldn't get a straight answer on certain key questions around what was happening out there. And I think that's continued to color the debate till today. If I flip on Fox News, I, I feel like it's fairly sensationalized. If I try to read the New York Times, you have to really squint to get a straight answer on basic questions about is this place less safe or not? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a it's a very complicated debate because although like the reference point might not matter, there are real lives that have been destroyed because of either good or bad policies that we've pushed. Like the US continues to have the highest incarceration rate. It's gone up dramatically in my lifetime. And I am one of these people who's trying to figure out where the balance is. And it's like a way more nuanced conversation, I think, for a lot of us than what's being portrayed in our politics, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Fetterman uh, hit is a good example. They were hitting him because he sat on the parole board. Like there are certain cases like a guy who was locked up when he was a teenager from something he did in 1969, and he had a perfect record in uh, prison, everybody voted unanimously, including the department, like whoever the warden representative or whatever it was, the victim's rights advocate didn't even show up to the hearing, right? So how am I, what am I supposed to make of a person who committed a crime in 1969, you know, and he murdered somebody during a robbery, it was bad, but then he has a perfect record. Do we, is it good for society to keep that guy in prison? I don't know. This is like a tough question, it's a legitimate right? legitimate question. Um, yeah. And so, uh, I mean, we all watch Shawshank, right? Like, it's like you have, these are complicated questions. I think of that much differently than, for instance, like this bodega debate that we had in New York City, which was a candidate I supported in Alvin Bragg because I wanted to see people try to push to lower the incarceration rate, but who's been in an <laughs> utter disaster, who until he was pressured, was about to lock up a bodega owner for protecting himself in New York City, yeah. which is obviously a, an overreach in the other direction. And I think the Democratic Party in particular is, is split on this. There's mm -hmm. a way, there's huge difference between Eric Adams, who shows up to crime scenes and says this is the worst you know, crime has ever been, even though he was a police officer in the early 90s. He's like using one kind of rhetoric on this and signaling to voters that he takes it very seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you have people like, you know, you sent Camille uh, this video from this this uh, mayor of New mayor Orleans. Of New Orleans yeah. They ask her, well, what do you think about the fact that New Orleans is now the murder capital of the United States? And she says, I do not embrace that at all. 
Uh, I don't embrace it because one, that is the, the, the data even used for that is more of a governmental uh, term for that. It's not based on what's actually happening on the ground in our community. I mean, that is textbook obfuscation. I mean, th th yeah. there's no sophisticated algorithm being employed to determine who has the worst murder rate. This is a per capita number, the number of murders per 100,000 or 1,000 um, citizens. And it's particularly bad in New Orleans. And I can assure you that the citizens of New Orleans are aware of what's happening there. Yeah. Right. When the mayor comes out and says, oh, I, I don't like that label. Um, it's just yeah. not something that's going to wash. And I, I think it's worth acknowledging as well that we can get more nuanced. We can think about solutions and remedies here. Like we know that certain things can impact murder rates, like clearance rates. Are you actually closing murders once you start to investigate The them? Atlantic's Connor Friedersdorf had an article where he said essentially solve all murders, and that should have been the it, Democratic slogan. Absolutely. In places like Chicago, you know, they've got this like inflated um, uh, closure rate that they're parading around now, around 50%. But that 50% includes crimes that have been solved, homicides that have been solved like over the course of the, for homicides committed over the course of the last 10 years. Oh, I see. Like, yeah, yeah. So they get to inflate the numbers. The reality is that in year, like actual convictions, um, and not even just convictions, but people who are charged, arrested and charged, you'll have 800 odd murders and 200 people in the course of a year that will get arrested and charged. Yeah. Some percentage of these people have been murdered and are, you know, they're involved in a violent game. But either way, that is incredible. I mean, that is de facto legal murder in a city in the United States of America in 2022. And it's unacceptable. And I, I see, I think what's happening right now because it's almost a civil war within the Democratic Party. I think it, in, in 2020, it was nearly impossible for people to raise their hands within progressive circles and say, hey, I, I don't like the rhetoric. I don't like this, like how, how we're like simplifying this debate. And also the fact that I felt at the time, and I've only felt more since that the debate was co-opted by white progressives who yeah. often um, were speaking from their sense of safety in their communities and from a position where they didn't have to live the cost of the policies that they were espousing. And now you see almost like it's like a purging of these this ideology. And I think in some ways coming too late for Democrats. And in my opinion, you will see more London Breeds, Eric Adams, then you're gonna see the Mandela Barnes type candidates uh, because I think that the sort of pro-public safety elements of the Democratic Party are winning, but yeah. it's they're gonna the, the party itself is losing because they we tolerated it or the party tolerated it <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, for too long. If you look at the primary election results for the mayoral race here, um, it's staggering. Like you could literally overlay like the crime rates and how many people voted for Eric Adams, right. and then you have all these like white liberals in the Upper East Side who are voting against him in the primaries and they all have their doormen and they right. don't really have to worry about the day-to-day -day issues. And, you know, here, I think he was a sign of what's to come in the Democratic Party if they if they want to get voters back. And I think this is very much a reality that's at the top of people's minds, at the top of women's minds, particularly, and women tend to be Democratic voters. So yeah. I think um, it's going to become more and more important going forward. I don't want us to lose, though, the momentum around sensible changes, right? I would like yeah. us to lower that incarceration rate. I would like us to come up with common sense ways to police so that uh, kids aren't harassed on the streets just for walking down the street. Like, I think those are really important reforms, even bail reform, which I think has been rolled out terribly. Mm -hmm. it, it is an important debate to be like, is your ability to pay the, the gatekeeper 
to whether you should be free or not is is a really important discussion, sure. right? And yeah. so I think like we need to defend the common sense changes to the criminal justice reform to make it a more humane system, to make it a more just system, while also calling out the simple simple rhetoric around defund the police, abolish the police, et cetera. And that- yeah, and I think you can hold in your mind that like from a libertarian vantage point, you'd like to see certain things decriminalized and the legal system simplified considerably, which I do, but also that the laws that we do have in place should be enforced consistently and you shouldn't have bodega owners in breakers because they stab someone in self-defense. Right. Meanwhile, people are just kind of getting let back out on the street. Like you can you can believe that you want the legal system to be cleaner and simpler and smoother, but also to be uniformly enforced. And so I don't think that those are mutually exclusive at all. Like you can believe in reform, but you can believe in law and order at the same time. Right. Well, let's move on to a different subject. Ricky, we have a debate brewing uh, about PayPal. uh, And I think just generally, uh, internet companies' role in the regulation of speech. Paint the picture for us. What happened? So PayPal rolled out this um, user agreement policy that they quite quickly retracted after public outrage. But essentially, there's this new policy that if you transact with them or you're selling certain materials with them or you have some sort of communication in your transaction that they they wildly expanded the scope of what is unacceptable use of their uh, platform and what could get people terminated or booted off. So um, very vague terms in this new policy that went out that they could they could bar you from doing any business if something was harmful or objectionable or promoted misinformation, was otherwise unfit for publication, promoted just intolerance vaguely, all at PayPal's sole discretion with a $2,500 um, damage debited from your account. So basically, if you're doing business with them, they can literally just take money out of your account. It's truly hard to believe that that went out. Um, And like the former PayPal president, David Marcus, came out against it despite being largely in favor of the company. Um, As a former employee, he said, a private company now gets to decide to take your money if you say something they disagree with, insanity. Delete PayPal, Google searches went up by 1,392%. The stock went down by 6%. And then they came out and they said, oops, it was was out, it was an error. Um, Went out as an error that PayPal's not finding people for information and that their, their policy created or had incorrect information, which is sounds like misinformation to me. <laughs> so I'd like to debit them. <laughs> well, it's this confusion between like disinformation and then these various clauses for categories yeah. of speech that P- PayPal is interested in policing. And, right. and it's always important to differentiate between the role of a private company or a private organization mm-hmm. and the role of government when right. we talk about free speech. With the government, government doesn't get to prohibit the things that you can say. A company, on the other hand, like, there is some degree of latitude with respect to yeah. who you decide to do business with and paypal is legally speaking well within their rights to make determinations about who they will and won't service but it does become very odd when they're making rather arbitrary distinctions Mm -hmm. and when there's no clear process for adjudicating why did this happen what can i do to have you perhaps reconsider it and it becomes a real issue when they're either holding a tremendous amount of your money or they're finding you twenty five hundred dollars per incident i mean you could i suppose the other odd dynamic here is if paypal has enough bad actors on their platform and they're charging them twenty five hundred dollars every time they do something wrong this is what a line of business for you right yeah like that's very odd and and i just don't think it's going it's obviously doesn't make very good business sense as a lot of the response suggests um but it also just doesn't seem sustainable 
so I'm glad that we're having the conversation mm -hmm. and I'm glad that a lot of people, like the good people at FIRE, who Ricky and I both have a relationship with, are paying closer attention, not just to PayPal's um, policies here, but the broader kind of payment processing regime that exists because all of them do have some policies that are somewhat like this. Yeah, yeah I, I, you make an important point that I think is really important to distinguish, which is the First Amendment itself is about the government. Mm -hmm. But then, as Ricky, you've talked about a lot on the show, we have a free speech culture, right? Where we we want to create a certain value of openness to certain debates. But then we also have market forces, which I think is really what's going on here. I think like, yeah, there's like a free speech culture, I think critique of PayPal. I don't think they're going to be moved by that. I think what they're going to be moved by is if their customers are fed up with this. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a right-left dynamic. And you know, the ACLU, among others, wrote a letter, I think like about a year ago, criticizing PayPal and Venmo, uh, which I think is a subsidiary now of yeah. PayPal, for you know a litany of, of different um, restrictions on speech, including stuff that people on the left can get up in arms about. I think one of them was like a graphic novel or like a publisher of a graphic novel. And at a certain point, we have to ask like, what, what do we expect, right? Do you just like basically should these financial services company, this is different than almost like a social media company in many ways, because it really has nothing the to do with speech. The stakes are so much right. higher. Yeah. I mean, there are 325 million active users between PayPal and Venmo. Like this is, these are people's finances and sometimes literally money being debited directly from their business accounts. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the, the stakes here are not, even though I'm very much against like censoring social media, it's not a tweet. Like it's literally your livelihood and people are seeing their accounts shut down, frozen for up to 180 days. They can't get their funds That's out insane. and they don't have answers as to why. Like the the lack of That's transparency. Yeah. I mean, even, even I don't think I would be satisfied with a lot of the answers that they have, but at the very least give people a reason why they can't access their own money for six months. That is shocking. I mean, the transparency would go a long way in even helping us have these debates. Like sure. we talked about Elon yeah. Musk the other day where I think, where I was is like, I'm generally more libertarian than a lot of Democrats on this stuff, but I find the sort of DEFCON 3 to, to Jewish people to be a line I would I would draw as a company. I wouldn't allow that on my platform. Well, Kanye and not Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry, the, Kanye, <laughs> sorry. But, the, but in order to have that discussion, I needed to know for sure what Twitter was doing and why. Yeah. I, had a, mm -hmm. I, had, I had an idea about why, but I, I wasn't quite sure and I didn't know how to stack it up against other decisions they made, et cetera. Yeah. And that's why that letter from, that I was alluding to that the ACLU among others wrote, I think lays out a couple of reforms that make a lot of sense to me. They ask for number one, transparency reports. So how many requests to surveil, limit, investigate, people and from whom, sometimes mm -hmm. government, sometimes from just activist groups. Yeah. Uh, when do you freeze an account and why should be in that report? And they said at the least put it out once a year, but give us that information faster, right? Two is meaningful notice to users. Uh, so like explaining to them that they've been banned and why and all that. We go through this even when we're trying to like put ads on meta and stuff like that. Sometimes things are blocked and we're not exactly sure why it is. And it's like trying to go through these bureaucratic systems that they set up is really hard. Mm -hmm. And then timely and meaningful appeals processes, which makes total sense. You put those three things together and that would meaningfully change this. It, it, it doesn't solve for the policy itself, but at least it, it puts it out there and says, all right, this is gonna be fair, it's gonna be transparent, and we could debate it. This is not dissimilar from the broader problem of content moderation in social media. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is very hard to get that quote unquote right. Someone will always be upset with you. Right. But some transparency, I think, goes a very, very long way. It is interesting to think about some of the solutions that people are trying to come up with from a policy standpoint. The fact that places like Texas, for example, have been 
trying to introduce legislation, although it's been somewhat jammed up in the courts, that would oblige certain kinds of internet service providers to effectively be content agnostic. Right. Mm -hmm. And there are legitimate questions about whether or not that's a good piece of legislation and also whether or not that ought to apply to publishers or people who are kind of quasi-publishers like right. a Facebook or a, a Twitter um, and financial companies. And I know plenty of good, thoughtful, free speech oriented people who think that financial companies ought to be treated differently. I'm not sure I agree with that. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure I disagree with that. And I'd rather see new companies come in, right, take shape and actually be introduced and enforce a lot of these companies to have to compete for the dollars of institutions of individuals and companies that insist like i'm uncomfortable with your vague standards for when you might be able to lock down my account and potentially mm -hmm. shutter my business if i can't get to my funds for two to three right. weeks that could be devastating for a small business yeah and the texas law it's i think like you sh the first amendment and in that case the government right so it's squarely first amendment the first amendment shouldn't require people to say things, but it mm -hmm. also shouldn't require them to tolerate them yeah. either. So yeah. to me, it's like if I, the First Amendment protects my ability to say yeah. you, I don't have to run a business where I allow people to say things. Like that's part of my First Amendment, right? Now, do I think it's correct that they do these things? That's for the public square, in my opinion. That gets to the free speech culture part of this. And that's why I don't think that law hopefully will stand. Uh, in the next segment, we'll talk about another attack on laws like that, that will probably also chip away at the ability of states to do stuff like that. Yeah, but I would say though, um, like this conversation, just because they retracted it, it's still super important because I don't think people realize how pervasive these super vague policies are mm -hmm. in virtually all of our financial institutions. Like Visa, for example, can like literally fine you if you have brand damaging transaction activity for them, whatever that means. Right. These are all at completely their discretion. Yeah. It's completely across the board. Already PayPal has extremely vague policies about um, if you promote any other form of intolerance, they can already fine you $2,500. This was just an expansion of what they had at their own sole discretion in place. And I think it's exceptionally creepy when you look at like the GoFundMe and the trucker uh, situation that like this can be really powerful. This can freeze people's lives and their ability to exist, especially in an increasingly digital world, especially when our businesses are more and more online, when, you know, there we were just locked down. And if you couldn't transact in, in the virtual economy, you could you couldn't make a living. Right. And it's it's shocking that there are people like Colin Wright, who's been outspoken against gender ideology, who was frozen in his PayPal account and then told, oh, go get a lawyer to get a right. subpoena. Right. And like, for example, Toby Young, who um, runs the Free Speech Union, he was, um, his his account was frozen. And then PayPal months later was like, oh, never mind, you're, you're fine. You can right. have it back. Sorry for the inconvenience. And he was literally trying to save his two companies that he had linked through PayPal from going into bankruptcy because literally a third of his funds were through their transaction platform. So, I mean, even in that instance where you could say, oh, maybe there's something that they know that we don't know, they literally apologized and they were like, oh, oops, No, expl No explanation in that particular case. I did see some reporting that suggested that might have something to do with COVID-related yeah. reporting, mm -hmm. like That's having conversations openly about things like the lab leak theory, which the COVID, I, I think, gives us a very clear illustration of just how difficult it is to police, quote unquote, yeah. misinformation. Absolutely. Um, what things can't we talk about? What things are we allowed to talk about? Can we talk about vaccine efficacy? Can we talk about whether or not masks work? Different perspectives have been offered officially 
especially, and I, I think it's it's worth underscoring something that I think you said a little earlier, Robbie, about the the relationship between government and these companies. The fact that it is entirely possible for the state to come in and say, hey, PayPal, yep. this particular group of bad actors, keep an eye on them. We want to see you shutter their accounts. If they're not being transparent and there's no obligation for them to share that information when that happens, and we've seen this before, we saw this with Edward Snowden and telecommunications companies that had relationships with the executive branch, like that is a huge issue. That is, at that point, we get into a different sort of territory yeah. when the state is giving orders to private actors to either encouraging them to or telling them directly that they need to take some certain action, that then becomes a, a violation of the First Amendment. But again, we need transparency in order to know what's going on. Yeah, and, and I would buy a certain carve out, right? If the government is arguing, like in certain cases, we have like really sensitive intelligence about Russian and, and Chinese efforts to sow misinformation in the United States and being super transparent about how we know that or whatever, I would carve out those limited exceptions. But I think in a lot of cases, that's very limited. Like otherwise, let's just have the conversation, right? Let's know why something's being taken down, right? Like at a minimum, the, the cultural consideration, it seems to me, is to take to take into mind the fact that at different points in the past, the the disfavored group, the group who was saying things that were deemed misinformation generally or just generally deemed as unacceptable for whatever reason, mm -hmm. would end up turning out to be right. And yeah. it is still the case that there could be plenty of issues about which the minority view is the appropriate view right. and, and will eventually win out and not allowing for a dynamic environment where we can tolerate the fact that people who own businesses have agree, have positions that disagree with ours is a real problem. And so I think that the, the general proclivity in society to punish people who have views that are dissimilar from mine and not merely to decide that me and my friends aren't going to, to, to do business with you, but no one should be able to do business with you yeah. um, is, is another thing entirely. And that's something that we, we have to be, I think, kind of thoughtfully concerned about. And you, there's a real sense in which no amount of legal protection is sufficient if that's actually the cultural dynamic that already right. exists. And the sad fact is boycotts tend to not work. You know, we all remember the great sure. Chick-fil-A boycott. <laughs> they seem to be doing okay. Yeah, they said they're Still doing Still close right. on Sunday. Well, uh, our final story, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. They heard a case earlier this week about pork producers. Essentially, what happened is California passed a law banning the sale of pork within the state uh, unless the producers used humane breeding methods, essentially expanding the footprint that each pig gets so that they can fully turn around in a pen. And this was challenged by the pork industry. This is a $26 billion industry. And essentially the argument goes that California is basically trying to export its morality. And the argument is you can't do that because the constitution prohibits it. And I don't wanna get into yet the constitutional piece of this, but just taking a step back to say, this is a law that would affect producers mainly outside of California who are importing the pork into California. California gets uh, fewer than 1% of its pork from in-state. So uh, we have a constitution, we have a, a provision that we'll talk through that um, essentially gives the federal government the right to regulate interstate commerce. The pork industry is basically saying, California, you do not have a right to uh, dictate, as they see it, the policies and practices of pork producers outside of your state. We talk a lot about animal rights here, so why don't we, I think it's important to just talk about why California passed this law before we talk about like the implications legally here. Ricky, 
I suspect you like this law. I am really conflicted on this law. I'm not sure. My like my inner PETA girl is confused, but it's a 2018 ballot initiative that it's not just pork. It was also um, veal and hens that lay eggs. And so it's in, in, in making sure that these animals literally can turn around in their crates. Like, I don't think that is seems reasonable. That doesn't really seem like a crazy thing to me. The federal laws that we have on the books to ensure that animals are treated well are there's two of them, ones from the 1800s, and you know they predate factory farming. And it's shocking that only 1% of 60,000 uh, pork producers comply with even allowing a pregnant pig to move essentially like it's it's not a bad law and like in terms of the the morals but i think the question i i am a general proponent of making laws as local as possible and when they're importing 13% of the national pork um, consumption just into California. I, I mean, they are impacting how people are transacting their business outside. So I do see why it's legally confusing. It's not morally confusing to me, mm -hmm. but it is. I do see how, you know, then what else can you require if you're importing goods in? Can you say that, like, I, I won't, can a conservative state say, I won't import goods from a company that pays for gender affirming care from their, for their employees? Or like, what, where does the line get drawn. Yeah. And people listening may be confused, like, why can't California just do what it wants? Well, there's this, there's a clause in the constitution called the commerce clause. And it says Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. And the, the court has long interpreted the commerce clause to not just mean that Congress has the power to regulate mm -hmm. inter interstate commerce, but that the individual states are very limited in how they can impede the commerce amongst themselves. Right. Basically, the originalists, the textualists uh, on the Supreme Court, people like Gorsuch, Thomas, and previously Scalia, these people who say the Constitution means what it says and nothing else. We don't read anything into it. The word dormant should be flashing red light for a lot of people here. Like it's not the literal commerce clause. I just read the literal commerce clause. So you have the conservatives who say, all right, the, the constitution says the federal government has the power. If the federal government doesn't exercise that power by passing a law saying you can't regulate the uh, animal welfare in, in the pork industry, then the states can do whatever they want. This was essentially Scalia's position, although he went along for president, pre precedent reasons. He went along with the dorm, dormant commerce clause, but he was really critical of it. In the oral arguments, what makes this a really fascinating case, it's fascinating for two reasons. One is the implications are huge, like what you're talking about, Ricky. Like if the court sides with the pork industry, which is interestingly backed up by the Biden administration here and the Chamber of Commerce, if they side with the pork industry, a lot of other laws could be implicated. And that was a big source of discussion uh, at oral arguments. That's one reason why it's interesting. Another reason why it's interesting is that the conservatives are split. Thomas Gorsuch in oral arguments and just from what we could tell about them are going to be very sympathetic to getting rid of the dormant commerce clause. But then you have people like Roberts and Alito who are very much like chamber of commerce, anti-regulation types who view the dormant commerce clause as a way to just prevent a lot of regulation. Because if there wasn't for the dormant commerce clause, we'd have all sorts of states regulating other activities. So it's tough. You know, I mean, it seems obvious to me that that part of the intent of the Commerce Clause is, in fact, to make 
trade regular amongst the several states so that you can actually have goods that are going across these borders in a, in a, in a fairly easy way. The real question here is, does the California law actually come up against whatever that threshold ought to be? And it is somewhat arbitrary, right. and we're, we're kind of dealing with it now. I think it's interesting to think about how this might play out. Like, is it really possible that the various producers of pork couldn't possibly find a way to comply with the law in California. I'm not so sure. Um, It it certainly sounds like this will be a great deal more expensive. I think they said something like 8% um, higher. Yeah, um, yeah, 1.9 to 3.2 billion dollars in compliance costs is what their estimate is, which hasn't really been held to scrutiny. But like, I would say by and large, I'd prefer Congress to just like yes. pass a law that just requires that animals are treated in the most fundamentally like ethical way, which to me is not even ethical to keep them in pens like this. But that's because I'm an extremist on this. I mean, but that but that also but, inc- increases the cost pretty dramatically for lots of Americans. And yeah, I mean, you, I would prefer it to be a congressional thing. I know that's never going to happen, yeah. but, that, but I wouldn't but say that, that should preclude a, a state from being able to do it. But I would say it's like a 13% sales hit, practically speaking, it's for any of these producers. And to not somebody, be able to sell in California. To not be able to sell yeah. in California. And somebody can say, you know what? It might cost me more money to build a second facility that is compliant with California standards. Yeah. But then I have a monopoly sure. on the 13% market too. So, I mean, I don't think it's totally an impossibility. And a lot of these producers are very large and can afford yeah. to invest that way if they decide to. Four companies control 66% of the pork industry in this country, and those numbers are way higher for the beef industry. These are near monopolies or oligopolies or whatever, and they're basically admitting it in their mm-hmm. arguments, being like, oh, you know, they're like essentially you're regulating all of us. I'm like, why is there no producer in California? Because they're concentrating in a handful of states like Iowa. But uh, there was a lot of, I think, apocalyptic rhetoric used by uh, the lawyers on behalf of both the, the Biden administration, the beef industry, and the Chamber of Con- Commerce. So there's this uh, lawyer named Jonathan Yurik, who is the associate chief counsel of the Chamber of Commerce, he said this would trigger harmful interstate trade wars, that it would uh, cause companies to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, potentially bankrupting them. But then there's information out there that seems to conflict this. So remembering that these are companies with investors, when these laws are passed, so when this proposition is passed, they want to reassure their investors. So what did they say to their investors? Well, Hormel Foods, for example, put out a statement saying, quote, confirm that it faces no risk of material losses from compliance with Proposition 12. Tyson Foods, one of the other major uh, companies, one of the big four in the pork industry, their CEO said in a 2021 interview that while Prop 12 is, quote, not something we're excited about, his company can, quote, certainly provide the raw material to service our customers in that way, right? And so, you know, this is one of the big four. They were saying to their investors they're fine, but then they're trying to fight this because it'll cut costs, right? But I think there's a policy argument. Is this a good policy? And then there's a legal argument. Mm -hmm. And to me, like you can believe, uh, Camille, what you said around what the original intent of the framers was, right? And there's this case from 79, um, from it's called Hughes versus Oklahoma, where the court said the Commerce Clause, quote, addresses a central concern of the framers that was an immediate reason for calling the Constitutional Convention, that the framers believe, quote, that the new union would have to avoid the tendencies toward economic balkanization that mm-hmm. had plagued relations among the colonies, right? I, you could believe that and still believe that the Commerce Clause gives com- Congress the power to solve it, but it doesn't pre, it doesn't inherently do the job for them. It says you can solve this problem by passing laws to say different states can't enact certain laws, but that like you have to use it. 
That's my point. Like you can't just say you can't do anything. You have to say, all right, like there's particular types of harmful trade practices that we as Congress are concerned about. We're going to pass laws to prevent them. That's how I see it. But it does seem appropriate to talk about the specific policy here and whether or not this is the best way to achieve this result. And I can I can appreciate people who are concerned for animals. I care about them as well. But people don't all feel the same. And it's possible that a regime of using uh, particular bandages or stickers like on on yeah. um, the, the f- food that is being sold could communicate the same sort of thing and could give Californians the right to decide whether or not they want to pay extra to buy more expensive pork, more expensive meats, um, and perhaps veal that isn't quite so veal-y um, mm-hmm. because these animals are treated in a more humane way. And yeah. I, I think that that is almost certainly a better way to go. Um, and it's certainly the case that it wouldn't in, 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 it wouldn't impose an undue burden on say lower income Americans who just wanna go out and buy their foodstuffs right. um, mm-hmm. and, and now find themselves in a situation where it's gonna cost them five, eight percent more to buy you know, a, a pork loin. That is, I think, probably an unacceptable result. And to the extent that could be the case for people across the United States because of California policy, it's worthwhile to at least take a look at it. But again, how legitimate is the concern um, on the part of the producers? It's very difficult to say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a good argument to be made that California should be concerned about lowering the fact that it's eating 13% of pork if they're worried about the ethics of it. And that's something to kind of control for. But how, personal way. how is the government going to stop? That? I'm not saying the government. Yeah. I'm saying Californians no, that are voting for this should probably stop eating pork themselves then if they yeah. feel that way. Let's come back to the legal part of this, because I do think there's an interesting debate about like how do we protect the most vulnerable and their access to uh, accessible prices while also preventing what a lot of us think is like a moral crisis in the meat industry. All of that aside, I think that's a really good debate. The reason why we're talking about this is not just because of the animal rights position, but it's because if if the court goes a certain way here, everybody admits, including the justices, if you listen to the oral argument, they were really conflicted even certain justices in in one sentence like Amy Coney Barrett and Kagan like of different politics and political views and ideologies were going back and forth in the questions to be like here's a hypothetical that goes one way here's a hypothetical that goes the other way they really don't want to undo the status quo in many ways i think they just really don't like this law and they don't have a very precise standard for for saying this one law is good and that one law is bad there's a test that they apply going back to the 70s from this case called uh, pike versus bruce church and essentially what they say is uh, if something is clearly excessive in relation to the putative local benefits, which is just very vague, mm-hmm. uh, you also have this case, Lawrence versus Texas, which is a sodomy case that I think lays out something that is inconvenient for California because California's own experts admitted, I think this was their biggest mistake as a lawyer, uh, they admitted that they couldn't really point to a health issue here. Right. If I were their lawyer, I'd be like, I'm going to get a report written that says that an animal in a cage that's really small has more stress. Therefore, the meat is worse for us. I would just that's what I would find. I would find that somewhere and I'd be like, this is why we're passing the law, because that would withstand, I think, scrutiny, because what you'd be saying is I'm not regulating your morality. I'm regulating our public health in our state. And I'm pretty sure the court would have been fine with that if they bought the rationale. Lawrence versus Texas, which was the sodomy case that um, undid the sodomy laws, 
said that you cannot use just strict morality as a justification of law. You need more than that. It has to be more than morality. It has to be safety or something else, right? Now, we can argue with whether that was right or wrong, but that is existing precedent right now, at least for the moment. So California needs to justify this as something more than just, hey, it's immoral. I, I wish morality were enough in this case, but it's not. it's not, right? But the bigger thing here is that there are a lot of things now that are going to be up for grabs if the court undoes the dormant yeah. commerce clause. You've got and all eyes are really on Amy Coney Barrett, I think, because she she seems to be like the key swing vote here. Marijuana legalization, you could imagine like supply demand across states. Like if you legalize it in one place, it affects it somewhere else. You know, even something like increasing teacher salaries in one state could affect the the job market in another state. That's interstate commerce. Um, California has a law that bans twenty four ingredients from cosmetics and personal care products. You could raise the minimum wage in one state and right over the border that could affect the the, the wages in another state. Right, you start to get into it. So you have to apply a test mm -hmm. here, and I think what the court is really struggling with is they don't know where to draw the line on this test, and. I think, you know, there's like a there's a narrow way they can decide this by kicking this back to lower courts. I suspect that's what they're going to do. I think they're going to try really hard to get rid of this California law without doing any major sweeping things when it comes to the dormant commerce clause because I think in contrast to things like Dobbs or even affirmative action, they're not exactly sure as a court what world they want here. Yeah, and it seems that there's probably not nearly the, well, not even seems, there's certainly not the sort of uh, built-in constituency from a political standpoint to no. get excited about this in either direction. Yeah. So they do seem to be kind of agonizing yeah. over this in, in ways that make a lot of sense. Again, to, to the extent that this creates a bit more kind of legislative modesty on the part of state governments, I think that that's probably a good thing on net, like finding interesting ways to achieve the same ends, finding, making certain that more animals are treated in moral ways without inconveniencing everyone who disagrees with that policy is probably not a bad thing California yeah. but again these are my my biases coming into play yeah I think it depends on how much we trust state legislatures and I don't know where to like I don't know where I stand fully I I, I err on the side of policy experimentation I tend to be more federalist so I, I I want more innovation at the state level and I worry that if this is too sweeping it will stifle that I also don't love stuff like we were talking about in the last segment like the Texas law mm -hmm. I think that'll fall on First Amendment grounds but if it failed on First Amendment grounds it certainly would fail under this test yeah right because this this would be the exact same thing because the social media companies it's not like they're gonna have one practice for Texas and then one for the this impossible to do this was the issues that mm -hmm. they faced with the European regulations yeah. Yeah. Um, on on the internet companies and, and California, which yeah. tried to to implement some of those stuff at the at the state level. Well, California also just has like a terrible and very conflicting record in terms of how they um, how they view animal rights based on what industries are in their state. Like there is this. Mm really ridiculous case that I covered for reason um, like a year ago where they had more, more of the dairy industries in California. And so they were trying to bar like a vegan butter company from using the word butter on labels in the state of California, mm. which the court found in favor of the company because they want to protect butter. So they were like, call it vegan spread or right. call your <laughs> sausages or your vegan sausages vegan tubes and like really unappealing things on the basis that it might confuse uh, consumers. And so there's there's clearly a double standard with how states will um, enact these sorts of policies that are unfair to producers, whether they're vegan producers or they're meat producers, just on the basis of what special interest exists within their borders. And so. that's what Congress, it, to me, was really the framers 
were really concerned about was protectionism. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about things like what was what were the debates like in revolutionary America or things like the Stamp Act mm-hmm. and tariffs and you know the the governmental protectionism was way more rampant back then than it is even now. So I think the big thing that they're worried about and the Supreme Court definitely has a a, a they have their sights set on anything that they view as protectionism. So I think like if there was a, a rich legislative history here that suggested that this was really about some local industry that they were protecting, I think they'd be lights out. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the opposite. The pork industry is saying you don't have any industry to protect, so it's just about you Projecting yeah, power abroad, yeah, yeah. Right? and they've yeah. been on flip sides of that exact yeah. issue based on what they were trying to protect. Right. Well, we'll keep an eye on this one. I'm genuinely, generally, I could predict these cases. I am not sure where this one's going to come down. My prediction is they'll try to get away with not doing anything here, while like leaving it to other courts, like lower courts, to decide. But we'll know in June. So. That's all we have today. Uh, If you're listening or watching, make sure to rate, review, subscribe us, share this podcast with your friends. You know, we're a nonprofit media company and we're fighting polarization online. And that means that our nuance, like in order for us to bring it to more people, we need you to share it with people, right? We're not going to like put out the sensational stuff for clicks. Uh, We require like good people like you to just tell the word to your friends and people in your community about what you like about this podcast. So please do that. And we'll be right back on Tuesday, same place, same time. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, editing and sound design by Monica Espitia and Joe Engelbrecht, video editing by Ava Maldonado. 